0: This episode is brought to you in partnership with Neonic Training Solutions. Neonic run a student-led physiotherapy clinic based in Shipley, Bradford. Neonic provide placements for a range of healthcare students offering supported direct patient contact, coupled with additional learning opportunities. This creates a unique placement package that can give your confidence and professional development a huge boost. If you're in the Shipley, Bradford area and would like to get some help with an injury or a long-term condition, then Neonic may have the solution. Everyone can get a free first appointment advice and then any subsequent five appointments would only cost a total of £20. Neonic offer extremely affordable physiotherapy service and if you're worried about seeing a student check out their five-star google rating. The students have time dedicated to concentrate on you and are supervised by expert physiotherapy practitioners that have a wealth of experience from a broad range of backgrounds. If you'd like to find out more about their services Whether that's from either a student or a patient perspective, you can find more at neonic.co.uk and we'll leave a link in the show notes.
1: So today we're joined by two newly qualified physiotherapists who both graduated from the University of Bradford this summer. So we're joined by Esme Dodwell and Meg Brown. So hi guys, welcome to the podcast.
2: Hiya. Hi, Brad. Thanks for having
1: us. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so just to start us off, I just wondered, um, what have you both been up to since graduating? So Esme, we'll start with you.
3: Um, Since graduating, I went and did a five week sort of like international placement in the Philippines Uh, when we came back from there. I was just a gym instructor, and then I started my band five rotational uh, physiotherapy role with Leicester Partnership Trust.
1: So, oh, yeah, and awesome. I've been
3: doing that since, yeah.
1: Cool. What's your first rotation?
3: In long-term conditions, so pulmonary rehab and cardiac rehab. Awesome. Community. How are you getting
1: on? You getting not, on all right?
3: Not, yeah, not too bad, thanks. Yeah, I'm sort of about... Four, three, four months in now, so um, finding my feet a little bit now. Um, it's good, really enjoying it.
1: Oh, awesome, good to hear. And Meg, how about yourself?
2: Yeah, so I um over the summer I've been working with Lancashire County Cricket Club, and I was also part of the hundred with the Manchester Originals. Um, so in that I sort of worked across both the men's and the women's teams, um, supporting the lead physio with recovery, and um, to make sure the lads were fit to play, basically. Um, And then I've just accepted a band five rotational position with Northern Care Alliance. So I'm hoping to be starting that in the next couple of weeks.
1: Awesome. Sounds really good. Okay, so um, I'm sure as you both know, but for the listeners, um, this podcast episode is going to look about um, looking at dissertations again. Um, So you two both did a research project. Um, So... Can both of you could you just introduce sort of what you did, why you chose that title and why it's important to you. So Meg, we'll start with you.
3: Yeah.
2: Um so my dissertation was on the impact of COVID nineteen on the learning experiences of physio students. Um so I chose this topic obviously when we came to pick our titles and things, it was obviously quite relevant. We were currently in the pandemic and we were obviously going through that as students. So I felt it was quite relevant to us. We'd obviously experienced quite a lot of changes. To our learning through the pandemic um and for a lot of like my peers we all found it quite challenging so i thought it'd be quite interesting to sort of look into what those changes were and the impact that it had on us throughout covid um and obviously when i sort of did some background research there wasn't anything similar within physio but there's some research in nursing students and medical students but nothing specific to physio so i thought it was going to be quite interesting
1: okay and meg is there any um other sort of parts to conducting um the research project that you'd like to add on to that
2: yes i think for us at our university we obviously had to do um a research proposal of the pre- year previous and um, so obviously part of that is putting together what you actually want to do for your research to so how you're going to conduct it so whether you're going to do a questionnaire or a focus group or a mixed method study and um, so part of the proposal included actually doing a draft questionnaire for myself because that was what my study was based on Um, and obviously as Esme already mentioned putting together like participant information and a consent form Um, and then once you've actually got your ethical approval it's a case of obviously finalising how you're going to conduct your research before you then go out and sort of get your participants so for me I did a pilot study as part of that Um, and then obviously went on to then recruit my participants through sort of social media channels and also Using my lecturers to send out emails and things to try and get people involved.
1: Awesome. I think we just lost we've just lost Esme there, but um, we'll see we'll see if she jumps back in. Um, so oh there she is straight away. Look at that. Um, so if we zoom in on ethics, um, for a, nice to have you back, Es. Sorry. Uh, if we zoom in on if we nice if we uh if we zoom in on ethics. Um, how did you both find the process of applying for ethics for your research projects? So we'll, we'll go to you first, Meg.
2: Yeah, so I think it's actually quite, I found it quite intimidating. Initially, you sort of get the form, which is formulated by the ethics panel at your university. And it's obviously something that you've never done before. So you initially look at the form and think this is going to be quite stressful. Um, so I think obviously discussing it with your dissertation tutor to make sure that you sort of understand the form before you start submitting it. Um, and then just try and take as much time as you've got for it. Make sure you go through each thing and make sure that you've sort of met every aspect of the checklist to prevent it coming back. Um, it is quite time consuming, but for me, I, it was quite straightforward just because my topic wasn't anything quite sensitive. It was you know quite a straightforward topic. It didn't include using um, sort of service users. It was using students at the university. Um, so mine was quite a simple process, but I know that other people found it a bit more challenging.
1: Yeah, I think the, um, the difference between the one that we had to fill in for literature reviews and the one that you guys had to do with the full ethics checklist, I think it's definitely something to put a lot of emphasis on, isn't it? When getting it done quickly, mm-hmm. making sure you've got that approval, because before you've got that, it's very hard to actually go forward and, and make progress. And like you said, they might send you it back with loads of changes to make. So the quicker you get it in and if you prioritise that, um, the quicker you can be moving on with it. Mm-hmm. What about you, Esme? um uh, how did you find yeah. the process of applying to ethics
3: long as well can very much uh agree with meg on a lot of points there <laughs> it's a long process and it is it can be kind of daunting you know when when you speak to your sort of dissertation tutor and they sort of start to tell you what kind of things they're expecting through ethics you know you start to realize the sort of like sheer quantity of work that's sort of like coming if that makes sense um It was one of those things that when I was discussing with my dissertation tutor, they sort of said, just start it over summer and just just get cracking with it. Um, Just because we need to get this in before, realistically, I started my fourth year. Um, So, yeah, very, very lengthy process. And obviously, there's a lot of things that you sort of had to include, um, as I sort of mentioned earlier. So um, once once that was done, um, again, like Meg, you just got to get it in try and do it as as well as you can with the first sort of time you submit it because again if you if you don't you know meet all the criteria I know I had um some slight wording problems the first time I submitted it so I had to just clarify that I was doing a discussion instead of an interview on on a couple of my pieces and then finally it was sort of like approved so yeah but yeah, no. It's it, the 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 biggest thing there is. Like, if you're doing something like what what we did at uni, just try and get it done as soon as possible, um, if you can, because it just helps in terms of the long run.
1: No, absolutely. Yeah, so. If you are starting up um, a research project, I think the, the biggest tip is get it in early, get it, get on with it quickly because you never mm. know um, how long it's going to take to do it. Yeah. I know a lot of people, some people are waiting late into January to get their ethics back. So it's definitely something to, to really push on with. Mm. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> so, so, so moving on. Um, Meg, just want to jump back to, you said about you conducted a pilot study, um, so could you tell us a little bit about what that entailed and, and why did you do that and what benefits did it have overall for your your full research project?
2: Yeah, so uh, part of my pilot study was that, that I wanted to sort of test my questionnaire um, on sim- a similar group of students but not my actual target population. So for myself, I submitted it to Um, Other students at the university like that were on the same course but weren't sort of in my inclusion exclusion criteria. So for me it was students that hadn't experienced learning like prior to COVID, so they couldn't be included. Um, So obviously they were similar in the sense that they were still students. So it meant that they would be able to answer the questions um, but just weren't included in my actual population. Um, So by doing that, it actually provided me quite a lot of useful information in terms of like the wording of my question, the layout of my questionnaire and um, sort of tell me whether there was anything that needed clarifying so that people could fully answer the questions. Um, and it also allowed me to make changes to my questionnaire to support students with learning difficulties. Um, so people with dyslexia and other sort of learning conditions like that. Um, it's something that I hadn't thought about because it's not something that I suffer with myself. Um, so I thought that was quite important to make sure that it was accessible for all students that were included in my target population.
1: No, so awesome. that sounds like it's really beneficial, and just like looks oh, like it's like a trial run, isn't it? So I guess that's what it is, just to, to iron out the, the finer creases. Um, and would you Would you say you'd recommend people that are going to do a questionnaire? Um, you recommend that they actually do a pilot study if they're, if they're able to, just to try and inform um, what they're doing.
2: Definitely, I think if you've got the time um, and your sort of time frame allows for that, then I would definitely try to include it. Just cause it meant that I could sort of. Reconsider some of the wording, make sure everything was really clear um, in what I was asking Um, and it just provides you with some really useful feedback and anything that you might want to sort of take out or change just before you put it out to make sure that the answers that you get back are really in depth and sort of meet what you want them to meet. So you're getting answers directly to that question and not something that's confused with something else.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of students can... um... Kind of go to their supervisors and be like, "Can you give me feedback on my questionnaire?" But ultimately, running a trial run like that is going to give you more more feedback and more tips for than than your supervisors able to um to to give you. Okay, um, Esme, so you had you had a focus group rather than um. Handling out a questionnaire, which, mm-hmm. which is really, really good. And not many students are able to organise focus groups for research. So how did you how did you go about organising that?
3: Um, so I spoke to we have uh, someone who's sort of expertise in, in the patient group. So I was initially looking at using a couple of the patients from our university clinic. Um, so we have a gatekeeper, so someone who looks after the clinic, Jamie. Um, I went to him initially to just sort of see in terms of in the patient records, did we have anyone appropriate? Um, I know when we were all students and we were sort of like doing our placement there, we had a couple of people that would have been sort of deemed appropriate. You know, sort of after having a look through the patient group, uh, sort of realised um, post-COVID, which is when I was doing it, there were not as many people that sort of like stroke patients had returned back to the clinic. And in terms of contacts, we couldn't get hold of them. Um, I think we had about two, which weren't as relevant. So I was then sort of signposted to a stroke group that were connected through the university clinic um, by Jamie. So I got in contact with them. um, And then I went over to have a, a talk, sort of introduce myself and what my research was about, uh, just to sort of like to see whether people would be interested in taking part. Um, luckily most of them were sort of very interested and wanted to sort of help out in, in terms of sort of share their experiences uh for my study. So we sort of arranged a date um where well obviously consent forms and information forms were handed out, obviously all clinical. Um but once I sort of like got those back, we arranged the date and um, we uh, sort of conducted the focus group discussion. Um, but yeah, no, very similar. sort of wanted to add on to Meg's point as well um, in terms of like piloting. I also piloted my questions that I was going to give to my focus group as well. Um, that, again, helped me massively just because in terms of just refining those questions to make sure that they were... Sort of like really easy for sort of my patient groups to understand. Uh, massively helped out. Um, excuse me a moment. <laughs> I've lost my thought. Are you alright? I have lost my train of thought. <laughs> um,
1: we're uh, talking about pilot piloting the, yeah, the questions. No
3: it's all right it's gone but yeah piloting the questions did help, actually help and it's like when I actually did deliver just because there was just a couple of things that I didn't think about and you can't really prompt the patients too much you want the focus group discussion to be sort of nice and fluid and other people to be sort of bouncing off each other so having those questions sort of like as good as I could get them definitely definitely did help so I'm sort of not adding my own personal bias into prompting them you know i'm not i'm i'm getting the answers that i i needed from the questions and not what i i expected if i'm i don't know how to quite say it but yeah
1: yeah it's almost if you start prompting them you start adding researcher bias into yeah into your questions and then it's just not conducted correctly and you're going to start influencing what they say and then you Mm. influence your results and then it's very hard to extrapolate it and apply it so yeah um it's, re- it's really good that you do that and they mm. the pilots the piloting the questions i think it's just it's so useful because although you could think that you've got the perfect question as soon as you ask it to somebody they could start answering a completely mm. different question so making sure especially with a group like stroke patients that they're actually going to answer um what you're looking for and that the question is actually tailored to the, an- the sort of answers mm. that you're looking for and that you're getting the right information is relevant to your study. So, yeah, Mm. really emphasizing that point, emphasizing that point on on that piloting the study and making sure that um, your your study is ready to go and it's as prepared Mm. as possible for when you're in the real thing.
3: Yeah. Yeah, it's just something I really wanted to sort of, I really wanted to make sure I'd piloted my questions before I was even organizing my patients. Um, and getting sort of like an interview, well, not an interview a discussion, ready for them, because um, again, it just it just made sure that on that day that I delivered it, it was all good to go, and it was as good as it can get. Yeah,
1: yeah. I think when you are doing something in person, like a focus group as well, it really helps you if you've done it before, you've actually mm. run through it, and you've yeah. you've sort of experienced what it's going to be like, and you are not just throwing yourself in there and in the yeah. deep end. Okay. We're going to move over and talk about some of the results from your guys' study. So Meg, we'll fire over to you. So please, could you just discuss some of the key findings that um, you found in your research project?
2: Yeah, of course. So um, part of my research looked at sort of lectures that were delivered online through the pandemic. Um, and one of my key findings was actually that asynchronous lectures, which are lectures that are pre-recorded that you can then watch back, were actually quite a key part of learning. So... A lot of students said that they found that they were really useful in terms of the fact that it allowed for flexibility in learning um, and that they could sort of go back to them at any time. Um, so they said that they found them really useful to sort for of consolidation of knowledge and revision um, and then they could use that sort of alongside the practical teaching. Um, another finding that I found was that face-to-face tutorials were better than online tutorials. So one thing that our university used was just sort of group sessions that were delivered online, um, sort of in small breakout rooms, in little groups. Um, And a lot of students reported that they found that they were actually really difficult to engage in, that a lot of students didn't engage in them. They had their cameras off through sort of those sessions. Um, And many felt that online tutorials just didn't provide the same sort of sense of community that a face to face tutorial provided. and obviously for physio students that's quite important we're usually quite a social bunch people like sort of bounce ideas off each other and work in groups so having those online didn't really work as well as face to face um and we are yeah that's it
1: well, that's really interesting because um physio is usually a really interactive environment um and when we're in the lecture halls we you're making friends you're forced working groups obviously it's um it's just the nature of what, of what we're studying and what we're doing. Um, so it's really interesting to say that people di- didn't actually prefer the, the synchronous lectures and that they actually preferred the flexible learning. But I suppose it's re- really hard to recreate that that feeling that you have in class when you're in person. So, yeah, it's just, it's really interesting.
2: Yeah, so one of the things that obviously was mentioned was that synchronous lectures were sort of better than asynchronous in a sense of that it was more like a live lecture like it was more like going to university I and mean, it allowed for people to still have that social interaction um, and still allow for them to ask questions and um, but the point with asynchronous was that they could then go back to them so some people mentioned that they might actually be beneficial for things like pre-reading so then they would then go in and still have a live lecture on sort of a similar topic or to build on the pre-reading and then they would be able to consolidate that knowledge and go back to it.
1: No, Yeah, that's, that sounds really interesting. I think um, a lot of universities will, will keep some of the, the um, sort of learning techniques that we had to adapt to over COVID because some of them were effective and I think they'll start to build in a mix of asynchronous pre recorded lectures as well as the, the online lectures, which uh, the live lectures, sorry, um, which are in person. Yeah, really, really, really interesting. So we'll fire over to you Esme. Um, So would you be able to discuss some of your key findings?
3: Yeah Um, so a couple of things that I found from my focus group was that a lot of the patients were quite fearful during this time um, and confused um, just because of the different sort of advice that they were given and there wasn't a lot of clarity in terms of you know most of the um feedback they were getting was from the news and sort of like that can be seen as kind of like scaremongering so it's like it's always chopping and changing um there was not a lot of support in terms of from health professionals during this time and I'm more referring to like the sort of the initial start of lockdown so obviously when all the services all the services are closed um, there was like not a lot of health professionals available to sort of like help talk through sort of like what to expect during this time. Um, so sort of a lot of patients felt quite isolated. Um, you know, you got to think, well, some of my patients that I'd spoken to lived by themselves. The only sort of method of contact they had was sort of like either through FaceTime or just normal calls so they were isolated to themselves at home um and so for that you know it's quite scary you know you you start to feel alone isolated you know There's there's a lot of things that you're having to then start to experience by yourself um physically I mean right sort of at the start we were sort of restricted to sort of an hour if most um of exercise as well a day so a lot of my stroke patients have sort of said that wasn't enough time for them to go out and exercise Um, so you know in terms of some of them had um, physical difficulties in terms of mobilizing as well so like by the time they got themselves ready outdoor sort of down the road it was pretty much time for them to come back so I mean a lot of them sort of experienced reduced amount of physical activity coupled with the fact that the sort of services had sort of stopped and health professionals sort of weren't as sort of accessible, um, you know, in terms of physical, mental decline, there was sort of, a lot of them had sort of mentioned they'd noticed that. Um, They sort of had sort of said uh, that things like Zoom, Teams, um, once that had sort of started up, it was sort of really beneficial in terms of contact because it allowed them to then meet up with sort of, other people in in their group in terms of the stroke stroke group, um, sort of then get in contact with health professionals. Um, I mean during this time, like GP surgeries were just gone to priority patients, and that was it in terms of general require like um inquiries about a long term stroke condition. You know they weren't seen as much as a a priority, so that was I think a lot of them found that hard. But uh, yeah, so. My big point was, you know, electronical devices and, and those forms of communication were really beneficial, but otherwise it was quite a scary and challenging time, you know, f- for them.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's a really difficult one because obviously there was an, there was an ever-evolving situation. Nobody yeah. knew what was going to happen. We didn't know no. whether it was going to be a few weeks or a few years. Like, we, we had no idea what was going on. I think a lot of the, the healthcare professionals didn't really know that so it wasn't almost like oh we can we'll see see what happens because nobody really nobody really knew and mm-hmm. that when you you said about the guidelines I think there's obviously some people who didn't take it as seriously and people who took it more seriously. but I think the people who were worried about their health and had other comorbidities like your stroke group would have been taking these guidelines very seriously and making sure that it was only one hour outside but that has such negative impacts and it's it's almost like it's very hard to give a guideline for for specific people and not just everyone um mm. but yeah these specific situations really should have been taken into consideration because if you you're trying to do some exercise it might take a lot you might yeah like you said you might only get to the end of the road in half an hour and then that's you turning back mm. and yeah it's really not enough especially with when we know how much exercise and getting out can could benefit your mental health
3: so I mean in terms of for stroke patients as well I mean I don't know if it's necessarily relevant but like a lot of them need to be doing the exercise especially if they've sort of got like problems functionally you know always encouraging this new like neuroplasticity and, and getting them to do stuff as soon as they stop doing it it's like if you stop it you lose it like so in terms of like the, the topic itself that I was looking at I mean it's so so broad you know almost needs like someone else to kind of take a small part and then go and look at that individually because you could just look at like the mental health aspects of COVID, like of COVID the physical aspects of COVID you know and then look at you know how much you know mobility was reduced in these patients like this patient group you know it's it's so big like It's almost like doesn't feel like it was enough time.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. I think um a lot of people found that with their um the research project. Although we had um eight thousand words to write out by the time we got to the end of it, I was like, oh, I've said a little bit too much, and yeah, yeah, I've still got so much more to say. Okay, so just thinking back to that, what do you think the the biggest factor um that affected the the stroke patients was it the not being able to get out as much, was it the the isolation what do you what do you think from speaking to those patients
3: i think the biggest thing and the one thing that they sort of mentioned the most was the isolation a lot of them again you know lived by themselves so it's like when you're living in a family you can kind of sit down discuss what's happening with everyone and you can sort of like digest what's happening you I think talking to people definitely helps, and when most of these people were living by themselves with only you know the phone as as a method of sort of contact, you're having to sit and and basically process what's happening in an environment which pretty much no one has experienced before by yourself you you're sort of sitting and watching the news, which is always telling you something different, and you know these people are having to to think about it and sort of process how that's affecting them I and mean, the guidelines, like we mentioned before, are always changing. So it's like, what is the new, the new norm every week? And, you know, we don't know how long this will last. And you think doing that by yourself, it's quite, it's quite challenging. And it's quite, it's quite scary because you've got no one really to talk, talk about that with. Um, and I think with the lack of information, like in terms of clarity, um especially you know you can't just call your health professional up and go you know this is this is what I'm struggling with I need some help it wasn't really that easy like a lot of them well a couple of them had mentioned that they could have almost done with a lot of hospitals started sort of setting up um COVID hospitals we almost in a way needed a hospital where if you had sort of got like a long-term condition you could go to I know this is all like in a perfect world but like you know that's kind of what they needed somewhere they could go and talk and sort of like get the help that they needed with with their sort of like their problem
1: no that was one of one of the questions i was going to ask you and it was it was what could we have done differently to, to help support these these chronic patients but like you said um that place for people with long-standing conditions to go to um do you think that there was anything else that we could we could have done to support these patients
3: um yeah no i think um i think in terms of just maybe setting it's hard because sort of a little bit later down the line we had telehealth set up um so if we're talking in terms of like immediately it would have been quite nice to have um maybe a telephone line or something like that where they could ring up and get in contact with a health professional just to discuss like or an expert uh, just to discuss what's happening and in terms of managing their condition along with what's happening sort of right now um, or maybe something like an information pack because a lot of them had sort of said when COVID happened they had nothing they had no information providing them with sort of like any guidance in terms of their condition and how to manage it during this time and i know it's one of those things where we we don't know what what was going to happen and what the next thing was going to be but just in terms of like managing your condition at home sort of like exercise wise just just anything in terms of information on what covid is or you know how to manage your symptoms how you know who to get in contact with if you're struggling that would have just been really quite beneficial for this sort of like patient group um But most of that sort of got set up later down the line. Uh, Um, But that immediate, they could have just done with some information. Yeah,
1: Yeah, Yeah. I think the NHS has has learnt a lot from the pandemic. And um, I think we've changed the way... Uh, especially with physiotherapy the way we perceived that we could actually make a difference with people always thought Mm -hmm. we had to be face to face and it sounds like you don't have to be um and a little bit of support and i know the the nhs was under tremendous amounts of pressure initially especially for physios everybody was getting redeployed um but yeah that that like that thought about actually what are our patients going to do in this time um and maybe some of us shouldn't all be redeployed to that because there's still a lot of people that need our help Um, and we can still do that we're just going to have to do it Mm. remotely but yeah awesome
3: yeah it's it's a hard sort of it's a hard thing isn't it because like obviously i i know like during the time you sort of see the stresses that you know the nhs and and health services got put under during this time so it's always like yes i we could have done this differently but like you know the situation was just yeah the situation was crazy so it's it's you, there's no like yeah. perfect
1: yeah yeah it's, it's in a perfect world isn't it And hindsight such a great thing that we could look back and say but i suppose it's the the learning processes that we can we can Absol- come from yeah absolutely awesome okay so um just generally for both of you um sorry megan i haven't been been speaking in a while um <laughs> if you were to to undergo this process again um so completely starting you go into your final year again is there anything that you would do differently and meg we'll, we'll start with you
2: um i think for me sort of maybe refine my questionnaire a little bit more um so once i sort of got into the process and sort of got probably to january february time I realised my questionnaire was quite long. It had four sections. There was quite a lot of questions involved. So I think I'd probably make it a little bit more specific to one area of teaching, possibly. Um, just because by the time I came to analyse my data, there was so much to sort of go through and then try and present it. And because it was there was like qualitative and quantitative data, like trying to sort of visualise those for my project, and then obviously for my um article afterwards, there was obviously quite a lot of information to condense and sort of get through and um, so yeah I'd probably shorten my questionnaire um, and I'd obviously think sort of like a tip for people is just to make sure that you are really interested in the topic that you're choosing it I think it's quite difficult to sort of pick a topic I think that's something that I really struggled with initially and sort of went with my first idea and I think my research was beneficial and I think it's probably come up with some things that universities might find useful going forward um, and it's probably highlighting to our university um, but I think you just need to pick something that you are interesting because it is a long process. There's a lot of work involved, um, so you just want to sort of keep your focus, um, sort of on your topic. So, yeah.
1: No, I, f- I think that echoes what um, me and Connor said before when we um we spoke about our dissertations, and that we had friends that weren't really interested in their shop picks, They'd just chosen it for the for the sake of choosing one, and it was a lot harder for them to sit down and do than when we were reading our papers and we were genuinely like, interested in finding out or for you guys you were actually interested in the results you were you were producing okay Esme is there anything that you'd do differently if you were to do this process again
3: yeah um I think if I'd if I'd done it again again it's probably similar to Meg I probably would have refined my questions a little bit and just tried to focus on sort of like three or four and um, sort of like I want to say like quality questions because I had had quite a lot and in terms of in terms of that it then opened my dissertation up massively there was so much I could have spoken about which is it's great in one way but in another way like it became it made the project sort of almost in a way too big it sort of needed to be broken up into more more projects um I mean otherwise maybe I would have would have been nice to do more focus groups get in contact with more uh a sort of a wider patient group you know more people that would have been really nice um or spent more time over a set couple of days doing some interviews but um otherwise you know like it's it's one of those things i would never done a focus group before so like just kind of
1: happy a it. no 100 i think um <laughs> The, the possibilities of research are endless and mm. you can make it as big or as small as um, you want but I think yeah the f- thing that's come across from both of you there is that you can you could have one sort of small area but it breaks up into so many different areas and it opens up so many different things and I think that ties it back into the piloting as well so if you could if you could go back and you've got these sort of pilot questions, and they start, you start to think, "Oh, right, I'll change that to get that. But then if you actually realise, like, look how much I'm trying to cover here. Yeah, Should I, I exactly. focus on this? Should I actually break these questions down into more specific questions and try and get better answers? So I think it's like that when you do a pilot study, you're, you need to realise why you're doing that pilot study. You're doing it so you can improve it, make your life easier, get what you actually want to do. So don't just kind of do a pilot study for the sake of it if you're going to do it make sure you're getting the most out of it make sure you're you're doing it with reason make sure you've set yourself your goals for it and you can like your aims for your project are completely changeable throughout the whole thing so you can change what you're doing so if you do your pilot study and go oh my god this is a lot change your aims choose a one bit change your title change everything it's your research you can if you find a a slight spin-off that you find even more interesting go for that it'll probably make your life easier in the long run
3: I think one of the things that I like didn't notice is when I picked my question I thought wow this is really specific now West Yorkshire stroke group long term I thought I'd I thought I did it and then as soon as I started doing my question sort of exploring it deeper in terms of getting the quality of data you're like oh crap. i should have refined this a little bit more which yeah
1: yeah i think it ties back to the get started early as well cause absolutely you, yeah yeah if you if you if you're doing this process in february there's not that much refining you can you can do but if you've got it mm. well done before christmas and you're starting to refine you can be doing your focus group in february March and you're still able to to get your your turn and um, if that if you may is your um your submission date but if you're leaving it until after Christmas and then you're starting to refine you're just not gonna you're not giving yourself the time on top of placements on top of every other thing you've got to do and the final year is it's a, is a big stress everyone, everyone <laughs> will know that um Okay guys I think that kind of kind of brings it to the end of what I kind of had for you so do you have any more tips or any just general advice that you'd like to give to to students conducting a primary research project? Um, Either of you?
3: Biggest point for me is get it started early like get your ethics done sort of over summer have a list of things that you want to do ideally you could you could probably get your background written pretty much before before you, you start within reason um because then it sort of just helps to build the discussion and what kind of things you're looking for the, the more you can prepare for this the easier it will be sort of you know if you've got your efforts done ready to go you know you're looking for participants you're conducting a group and then you're off you're great like yeah, helps so much when you sort of again managing placement and you know other assignments you've got around sort of like university life like so yeah,
1: yeah you can never be too prepared yeah how about you meg anything else or just echoing yes
2: yeah, pretty similar to be honest i'd just say like just try and stay obviously on top of the workload i think once you sort of look at your ethics in the summer you think oh this is quite a lot of work so i think if you can sort of maybe Put together a bit of a projected timetable, discuss that with your dissertation supervisor, see sort of how long they would recommend for certain things and then just try and obviously stick to that. Like Esme said, get things done early, don't leave it till sort of towards the deadline um, mm-hmm. and just try and get, I'd say try and get a draft done quite early and get that in for feedback. I think the more feedback you can get, the better. We were fortunate that we were allowed to submit each section once. So we we're virtually you're allowed your whole dissertation to be read once obviously that might differ between different universities and things but I think the feedback you get from your supervisor is ultimately going to reflect in your final research projects and the grade that you ultimately get so I think it's quite useful to get that draft in early. And get some hey, I, w- feedback.
1: I wish I'd have known about getting feedback on every section. don't, uh, don't know yeah. where I saw <laughs> that. Yeah that, that might be <laughs> sp- specific to you Meg. Uh, <laughs> Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. I think uh, one thing we we both you just kind of skipped over there, but also the importance your supervisor plays. Um, mm. Talk to them; they're they're there to help you. Don't be pestering them with little simple questions that you can you can work out by yourself. At the end of the day, it's, it's your research project. You're mm. you're working at a higher level now. You need to be doing your own work, but have a good relationship with your supervisor. They're marking it. Get to know what they're looking for. Get to know how they want you to present it what just yeah everything is related yeah. to them and work with them better partnership just like with your patients if you can work with them nicer every, everything's happy everything's happy. yeah also, i
2: think sunshine some of the feedback are, sorry i think some of the feedback i got from um, my supervisor was that i went to the meetings prepared so that's something i'd recommend like make sure you know what you want to talk about make a list sort of go to that meeting prepared so that you then use in the limited mm. time you've got with them to make sure you're getting everything you can out of that meeting
3: yeah a a different point as well um in terms of like being prepared I think another point that would be quite good is have a look on your library sort of like database on other dissertations um I really thought it helped having a look at sort of like other people's dissertations that had also done sort of like primary research just allows you to see how they're structuring things what kind of things are including sort of like Gives, gives you that nice kind of this is okay what my dissertation will hopefully look like come you know when I submit it it sort of like makes the whole task look slightly less overwhelming when you've got someone there to sort of like go that's kind of a, a guide in a way um yeah
1: yeah awesome I just add to that um don't just look at one yeah look at multiple. a few yeah take good bits from each one um don't just set your structure just based on any one but yeah look for a few see how they've all done it what what do you like about it what do you not like mm. about it make your own plan make it unique to you but yeah definitely mm. use something to guide awesome right guys thank you both for, for coming on and talking about your research projects and giving tips for the students I think it'll be very useful uh, yeah thank you for coming on guys yeah thank, thank you for you.